Welcome to Creative Income, a podcast that focuses on making a living in the creative space. Whether you're an actor, filmmaker, musician, painter, or anything that doesn't fit the nine to five mold, there is value for you here. I'm Lars Lindstrom. Let's get into it. Lars Lindstrom here, Creative Income. Welcome back. This is a really fun episode for me. We got to switch the tables and uh, change things up a little bit. Uh, if you'll see the title of the episode, that's not a typo. There is not uh, another Lars Lindstrom on the podcast. It is uh, my dad, Nils Lindstrom, interviewing me. He, growing up, was a graphic designer uh, and a, a, a professor at Art Center College of Design, but he's always been an entrepreneur and he's been one of those people that just believed in me anytime I had a crazy idea as a kid, you know, some weird plan to make money. Uh, it was never scoffed at. It was always taken seriously, and they were very supportive. Both my parents, incredibly supportive of uh, me and my passions, and and I attribute a lot of my success, almost all of it, to to them and the trust that they instilled in me as a young kid. Um, so this is fun, and it's you know it's it's great. We get all sentimental at the end, and uh, it's just it was it was really cool. And I think I learned some things from him, and he learned some things from me. Ah, family camaraderie. No, you're gonna love it. In the meantime, um, share it. It's it's cool. It's a cool episode. And I and the whole point of this podcast is it came from the idea. I I was on set, and I had crew member after crew member that um, on film sets couldn't. Uh, buy houses they couldn't uh, they weren't getting married or having kids because they didn't think they could financially support their families and and it kind of it kind of made me a little bit bummed out a lot bummed out actually it made me really sad because they're some of the hardest workers i know and financially they were struggling and so this this podcast is about giving back to the artist community um and i really want it to grow for them, I mean, I really do. It's I, th- I think it's symbiotic. You know, I, I want it to grow for me for selfish reasons, of course. Um, but I also really, truly, genuinely, the the point behind this entire thing is to help people and support people and their passions, what they're passionate about financially. Um, so, if you wouldn't mind, uh, I'm not getting choked up. It's just uh, <clears throat> late at night and I haven't had a lot of water. So, uh, if you wouldn't mind, let's. Let's reach out to a few people in the artist community that you think would benefit from the podcast, and let's tell them about it. Let's share it on social media. I want people to grow financially and be creative at the same time, and and I hope that you can see that, and I hope we can share it. So without further ado, here is me and my dad, Nils. Enjoy. Now, do we want to make it uh, known that I'm your father and I'm interviewing you? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. <laughs> so, no secrets here. No. no. I'm interviewing my son. And yes. this is my first podcast ever. Is it really? Yeah, I've never... Well, I've, I've been interviewed for a podcast, but I've never actually interviewed anybody for a podcast before. Okay. Okay. Well, that's what I was wondering. Yeah. That's fun. Yeah. So, I'm a complete novice here. Yeah, well, so am I. So, that makes two of us. Well, good. Yeah. It should be interesting. Yeah, I agree. So, uh, what do you want to ask me? Well, the first thing I want to ask you, and I... I, I think I already know the answer to this question, mm-hmm. but I could be surprised. You, you might know a lot of the answers to these questions. Okay. And that is, where did the first spark come from to make you want to be a creative? Hmm. Well, it came from you. And, uh, and I, I think I just, I grew up with a completely different mentality of what you do when you grow up, right? Everybody in my sphere, anyway, was kind of an entrepreneur 
in some ways, right? It was, uh, you were a graphic designer, but you had your own business, you had your own clients, you had multiple clients. And I just kind of grew up with that mentality that I don't go to work for somebody else. I just work because it's fun and I like what I do and I get to help other people create. But I did work for somebody else. No, you worked with lots of other people, yeah. I, I mean, I did have a, I had a full-time teaching job. That as well. Yeah. So I sort of had my foot in both worlds, in a way. And, but, okay, but, but surely, weren't you told not to go in the creative field? Weren't you said, don't do it, don't no, do it? No, never. <laughs> no, in fact, any, I remember, uh, gosh, you know, when I was an audio engineer before I became a cinematographer, and... Um, I think I had said something like, I, I'm going to be an audio engineer. And these are the things that I need. And I started collecting microphones with my own money. I went and sold uh, candy <laughs> at school. Literally, I, I, I was in choir and we had these candy boxes they would give us for 45 bucks and we'd sell them and we'd make $45 for $90 total. And, and I would sell my candy in like three or four days and I would go to Costco with my mom and fill up the box and go back to school and I would I would go through the candy aisles and figure out which candy was going to get the best return on investment and uh, let's say I could charge a dollar for this candy and that comes with 17 pieces okay well this other one only comes with 14 so let's get this one and uh, and I would sell all the candy pretending it was for choir and then I would pocket the, <laughs> the, the profit the money and I would go to guitar center on the weekend and I'd buy microphones and cables and things and but um, yeah, so I built a recording studio in my bedroom, and uh, and I couldn't have done it out without you and mom. Honestly, I couldn't have because I think I think you helped me either purchase or well, we built that rack and we built that little desk. Remember? Yeah, we built yeah. we built a, a rack mount for all the mm-hmm. the effects equipment, and then but you bought my first audio interface. It was called a little M Audio Quattro, and I did. You bought half of it. Oh. Oh. Yeah, and it was like I think three hundred dollars. So it wasn't it wasn't a small investment for a fourteen or fifteen year old. But um, but it was it was that trust and that I think just yeah go for it kid mentality that just I I've has fueled my entire creative life honestly. Uh, where I have this idea, it's a dumb idea, but you've never told me it's a dumb idea. You said yeah, give it a shot, and then I would I would have high school bands, mostly heavy metal high school bands here on the weekend, uh, you know, when I was 16, 17 years old, and I was charging them 20 bucks an hour to record, you know, a few songs. And, uh, and I would, you know, we'd, we'd track the drum or the, the guitar and the right. voice and everything. And then I'd say, okay, family, um, so here's the situation. We're going to, we're going to track drums now. Um, you can stay if you want to. We put the drums in the hallway. It was the only place that would fit. And I liked the acoustics in the hallway. Um, or you can go get lunch for a couple hours, and uh, usually people would go get lunch for a couple hours. Cause but I, I will interject just a little bit here. Mm. It was never a dumb idea because you always worked it. Yeah. If, if we had you know, invested time and, and money into it and, and you never did anything with it, then it would have been a dumb idea. But the fact that you used it and you leveraged it and yeah. you, kept, you kept pursuing it and getting better and better, it, it was never dumb. Yeah, and eventually I stopped being an audio engineer, and I think, but I think it was okay, right? I had proved myself, or proved to other people that I could do it. I proved to you that I could do it, and and I eventually moved on because I realized there wasn't money in it. But it wasn't like I, I ditched it before I had another idea or another kind of entrepreneur venture. Uh, it was I, it was the, about the time that I kind of fell in love with photography and editing and cinematography and started to 
while I was still recording bands in college at this point, uh, transition to uh, to cinematography a little bit. Yeah. So, tell me a little bit about that transition. What made you choose cinematography instead of something more sexy like directing? <laughs> well, I had a conversation with someone. He probably doesn't remember it at all. His name was Jason DeVilliers. He he was um, he worked for a TV show called Yo Gabba Gabba, and I I had a cousin that was on the show, did a lot of the music on the show, and it was still while I was doing audio engineering, so I was still kind of fascinated with what he did, and I had mentioned that I was thinking about going into filmmaking, and he just out of the blue said, "Don't be a director." I said, why? He goes, go be a cinematographer. If you go to school to become a cinematographer, even if the end game is to be a director, be a cinematographer so that you can shoot everybody's films and get an idea for different styles from the directors. And he says, by the time by the time you'll have graduated, you'll have shot 20 projects, you'll have worked with 20 different directors, you'll know what to do, what not to do, and um, and you'll have all this experience on set, and you won't be in debt. Because the directors are paying for the films, and they just you know have you come along to shoot it on you know school equipment, and you don't have to go into out of pocket. That 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 kind of was like oh okay interesting yeah I like that idea, and then I fell in love with the craft as I chose to do that and decided to to stick it out. So, how is it that you got work? I mean, did you just graduate from school and people were flocking to you to be their cinematographer? Why would they hire you over somebody else? That's a good question. So cinematography, no. Um, I was, while I was doing my undergrad, had a a couple of people, one person in particular asked me, she she didn't even ask me, she said, you do weddings, right? And it was right as I had bought my first camera and I didn't know what I was doing at all with it. And And I lied to her. I was very unethical and I lied and said, Yes, yes, I do weddings. And she said, great, what's the name of your company? And I lied again. And I said, romantic wedding videos. <laughs> so I just, I made it up. and You just uh, pulled it out of thin air. I did. And then I, and then I realized, well, okay, I should probably, well, I, I guess a website came much later. But um, so I shot her wedding and she asked me how, how much, she said, we don't have a lot of money. We have $400. And as a co- poor college kid that I'd buy, I, my first camera was 800 bucks. And so I thought, oh my goodness. I can pay off half this camera for a day's worth of work. There was a little bit of editing, but I think I did. I think I cut most of it in like half a day or something. So, so I said, yeah, I'll do it. So I have 400 bucks. And then she had a sister that saw the wedding video that was also getting married in like a few months and hired me. And I charged my regular rate at uh, $700, which was also completely made up and fabricated. But, but I had these two weddings that ended up not half bad. And... I said, my goodness, this is crazy. I can't, like, and I, it was about the time I was maybe moving to California. I, I just graduated my undergrad in Idaho. And um, I said, let me see if I can throw these up online and just hustle Craigslist and Facebook Marketplace. And, or no, Marketplace didn't exist, but uh, Facebook and create a wedding page. And uh, as I was driving back to California, I had posted on Facebook, yeah, I was doing wedding videos and whatnot. Um, I got a phone call from my first random person that I didn't know saying, hey, I saw you're out on Craigslist. We're getting married. We like your videos. Can we hire you? Our budget's 1400 And uh, and it was just kind of off, off to the races from there a little bit for the wedding videos. But then as far as cinematography goes, no, no. It took, I mean, it, 
it took up until now years, <laughs> you know, I'm, like it's still, it's still a grind for sure. People don't flock to me. It's you, you have to hustle. You have to know, you know, what to do, who to contact. I, I always tell people looking for clients, um, don't, don't look for clients for business. Look for friendships, look for relationships. So, so when I find someone, I, I try to, at first anyway, find something that I can relate to them. Hey, I saw your friends with so-and-so. And I tell some sort of story or whatever to connect us a little bit. And then I say, are you free for lunch? Uh, and, and the entire purpose of lunch is to get to know them. It's not to talk about business or upcoming opportunities. It's really just to get to know them as a friend. So it, it does take a certain sort of personality. You have to be a good conversationalist and you have to be a good listener. Is that what you're saying? Or I'm sorry, what were you saying? You have to be a good conversationalist. I'm just kidding. I heard you. <laughs> and a good listener. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's a lot of um, people that put a lot of emphasis on book smarts in school. And, and I was kind of a dumb student, not so much in college, um, but my in high school, I think I got like a like a 2.8, 2.9 GPA. So was, I was really not a book smart kid growing up, but I loved high school more than anything for the social aspect. And, uh, and so I, you know, I, I valued that and I value it now. But yeah, I think being a good conversationalist and listening to people is, is more valuable than, than a lot of book smart stuff. So you pursued wedding videos for a while until what happened? Yeah, good question. So I actually, I actually started my graduate program at Art Center College of Design, which is uh, where you are a teacher. And, and I was incredibly fortunate and um, privileged to get a full scholarship to Art Center. Um, I don't know if I would have gone had I not had the full scholarship. It's a very expensive private art school. And um, the only reason I was able to get in was because you taught there. Uh, and I do think that there... No, that's uh, not true. You had to submit a portfolio. You're, no, you're right. And they didn't know who you were. And they didn't know who you were. Right, I <laughs> mean, you were my dad, yeah. Right, they, they, they didn't know there was a connection there. So you got in on your own merit. True. No, you're right. Yeah, man, this is different, having my dad interview. You, you know all the tricks. You know all the things. <laughs> well, I know, I know part of the story. <laughs> I, and I know some of the details that you might choose to leave out. Uh -huh. but... Yeah, no, you're right. I did have to submit a reel, and they called me several times. Now, you, you're not looking to be a director, right? You want to be a cinematographer. Yes, that's right. I want to be a cinematographer. Okay, okay, great, bye. And then they accepted me. But um, so, so while I was going to school, the, the perfect thing about weddings was that it was a weekend gig. Uh, I was able to do sometimes Friday, but mostly Saturday, Sunday. And I, so I was in school five days a week, and then I would, I would do these weddings on the weekend. And of course, I got better. My rates went up. And as I would make money, I would then invest it in cam more camera equipment. So I started buying um, different cameras, different lenses, tripods, jibs, steady cams, all that kind of stuff to support the wedding business. Um, and, and by, by the time I got into college and, and I graduated college, I think I was charging something like $3,000, $3,500 a wedding. So it did go up. And, um, and the last year I did weddings, um, I just kind of got burned out and, and I just graduated college and I was looking to do cinema, you know, actually, I wanted, I wanted to make movies, I wanted to do commercials, I wanted to do something a little bit more cinematic, less natural light, which I loved weddings, weddings provided a lot of opportunity for me. But the last year I did 38 weddings. And so 
I just, I, it was so much work. Uh, the editing, the, the more expensive they got, the, the more picky the clients were. Um, some of them were just a dream come true, but some of them were very particular and you didn't get a shot of mom during the blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, <laughs> you guys, I focused on you. I'm so sorry. That should have been a conversation. Anyway, but um, so I got burned out and I decided to sell the wedding business, get out of the wedding business and buy a cinema camera with the money I had made from those 38 weddings. So I bought um, something called an Alexa Classic. And I, it was a big investment for me, much bigger than anything else up to that point. What was the option? Remember that conversation we had? Yeah. You called me up over the phone and uh -huh. you said, Dad, I can either buy a house or I can buy this camera. And you said, buy a house. Mm -hmm. You did. All right. And then we had a little conversation. We hung up the phone and I was in the car with mom and I said, well, what else could I have said to make him buy that camera? <laughs> Because <laughs> I knew what you were gonna do. Well, good, good, because uh, you know, because I it was a conversation with you and obviously my my wife. You know, it's, do we buy a house? Do we buy a camera? And you had said your piece, and I and I thought, well, I should probably buy the camera. Then Dad says I should buy a house, and then I asked Caitlin, my wife. I said, what should I do? And she said, I can't remember how she put it, but basically she said, the thing that separates other cinematographers from your work right now is is not necessarily a camera but it's the type of shows and types of movies and commercials that they were shooting on was this camera and and she said go for it do it we, the house can wait which was incredible of her and very amazing and so i went and bought this camera it was about thirty three thousand dollars just for the body and then i had to buy lenses which is another 14 grand and a tripod which is four so it was like all in it was something like 50 grand 50 or sixty thousand. Uh, which is was an enormous amount of money, more than I had spent on any camera equipment before combined. Um, and it was a grind. I think the first year I on that camera made maybe oh, 14,000, 15,000, something like that. I shot four movies, uh, four feature films. Um, so no, it was more than 15,000. It was a lot more than that. But um, it, that was including my labor, but uh, four feature films that just kind of came out of nowhere. One of my photographer friends from the wedding business called me up one day, right as I was graduating and said, I want to do a feature film. And it was like kind of a joke to me at that point when someone said, I want to do a movie. Because you just go, so does everybody else. But yeah, man, sure, you got it. Send me a script and we'll make one. And 48 hours later, he called me and said, I haven't slept. I've been writing the script for 48 hours and I'm sending it to you now and and he did and sent it to me and it was a, a dumb uh, cheesy hi, high school raunchy comedy uh, road trip film called Highway to Havasu and and I think I want to say I, I charged him 10,000 bucks to for me my camera for like a month and my lenses and everything it was like maybe even less than that honestly 7500 maybe nothing but we went and made this movie and having a feature film to show up on your IMDb and it just kind of it's it does something for other people they can they can look at it and they go oh there's some people in this movie and that poster looks pretty good and that trailer is kind of fun uh, I can hire this kid. So then I did um, a movie with the AD after that. And then right after that, I got a phone call from a producer up in, in Salt Lake City that said, uh, um, actually, it was my friend Troy called and said, um, there's this director that I have told, I've told him about you. 
I want you to meet him. His name's Rob Diamond, and he's got this film with this uh, young kid attached, and it was ended up being a movie called Love Everlasting. And um, I think I charged all in about 25000 for that film. So you can already see in something like six months uh, with just a little experience how that was able to scale to a completely different universe. And then, and then right after that, I did a film with my, my now very good friend Royce, who actually I interviewed. He was my first um, podcast, po interview. podcast interview. So how yeah. long did it take you to pay that camera off? Probably three years. Mm-hmm. And I barely paid it off, that camera. Yeah, when all was factored in, in including the labor and the lenses and all that stuff. But, um, but, here, but here's what I, it, it, it opened the door for me uh, to opportunities that created relationships that are still very profitable and very valuable to me today. And I've moved on from that camera. I, I about four years ago, bought another RE camera. Um, and I've purchased five, I think now. Um, I don't own five right now, but I've purchased five through the years. And and every single one, um, the one that's paid itself off several times was the Amira. It was the second RE camera that I bought. And I still own it today because it's been my bread and butter for so long. But I've probably paid that, and that camera was 37000 when I bought it. And I've probably paid it off maybe five or six times. So would you say that people hire you for your talent or for your equipment? Yes. Yes, they do. Um, they hire me for my talent, uh, but there is something, there is an advantage to owning equipment for producers. It's one COI, which is a certificate of insurance. Um, so, so a producer generally will hire a cinematographer and they'll hire everybody and then they'll have to go to a rental house and they'll have to provide a certificate of insurance for the rental house. And you're, you're doing everything a la carte, essentially, because then you have to go get your grip and electric equipment from a different rental house uh, and then maybe a truck from a different place. So there's all these different vendors and different certificates of insurance, different paperwork, and it's a la carte essentially, so the price is high. Um, so when a producer calls me up and says, you know, we, we need uh, camera equipment, we need um, lighting equipment, where do you want to go? I'll say, uh, well, I have um, a truck full of lights and grip and electric equipment. I've got this camera package that we can use and and I and I provide these options for them and sometimes they don't sometimes they have better deals on the equipment other you know in other places but most of the time they're ec they're ecstatic because it's one certificate of insurance for them. It is one vendor and everything just shows up and it's super um, it's a super deal. I'd negotiate the heck out of the price because I own it all. there's no and there's no overhead. You know, it's my business. I'm a cinematographer. I don't really care if my equipment's not going out every day. As long as it's available for me when I'm ready to shoot, it's, it's just really convenient. Great. Okay. Now, we know, I think you've been very good at explaining what to do to be successful. What are some of the mistakes you have seen other people in your situation make? In other words, what not to do? I see a lot of young people starting out think that they need to buy everything brand new and shiny. And, and I think that that's a terrible mistake. I think there's a time and a place for new and shiny. I'm at a place now in my career where, where I am buying new and shiny. In fact, I, here's, another, here's another thing. New and shiny usually means you finance it. And for the first uh, majority of my career, I, I didn't finance anything. I paid everything with cash. 
quite literally with cash. It was and, a lot of, and it was used. It was used. Everything was used. The Alexa Classic at the time was still selling for about seventy-five thousand dollars for the camera body, and I bought it for thirty-three thousand. So, so by doing and in doing so, if I had bought that brand new and then financed it on top of that with a five percent interest rate, I would have ended up paying eighty-five thousand dollars for the camera that I never would have paid off. I never could have paid it off. Technology in the in the film industry because it's digital moves so fast that I I it, that camera would have lost value faster than I could have paid it back. But I didn't lose money on that camera, and and ultimately I made money because then I sold it for something like ten or eleven thousand dollars. Um, so, so, so I guess I made a profit on it after three years and not to mention it opened all the doors for me. In the meantime, though, I was buying lenses, I was buying tripods, I was buying monitors, I was buying other cameras and, and putting them in another, in, a, in rental houses, um, so that they could in turn rent it out, make me money. Um, but I bought everything used, uh, up until about two years ago or a year ago when I started, uh, financing um, equipment when I could kind of have a little bit better of an idea of what the industry was doing. So yeah, I would say, uh, they pay, they pay with credit and they buy new. Mm -hmm. So the mistake that other people make is they buy new. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Starting out. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I bought a set of lenses. Um, I guess it's about two years. Yeah. It was two years ago now for a hundred and Twenty thousand uh, for a set of four lenses, um, RE Signature Primes, and uh, and that investment is a slow grind as well. <laughs> it is slow grind, but it, it, here's what I love about lenses: lenses, glass. Here's my my motto now: glass and metal for long-term investments. What I mean by that is lenses, glass, metal, tripods, map boxes. Uh, filters would would be glass, uh, anything that doesn't have a, a lifespan of five years. So camera bodies. Camera bodies are great if you're a cinematographer and you need one or two to get rented out a bunch on the shoots you're already doing. And if you're a rental house, great, buy cameras. But if if you're you're just a small individual that doesn't really shoot a lot, then it's maybe not the best investment for you. But glass for me is the long game. Like glass is good for 30 years. I'm still using lenses that are 30 years old. And they're worth more now than they were 30 years ago, you know, because there's a finite amount of them. People like the vintage look. So, no, there's a lot to be said about about that kind of investment. So, no, I, I'm very much into um, weighing the pros and cons. I bought a camera last year. My Amira was getting kind of old. It's a six-year-old camera. And that lifespan says it's probably on its way out. I still love it. I still shoot with it all the time. But um, but I bought a new, uh, new Alexa. It was the Alexa Mini LF. And it's about $80,000 and I financed it um, because it doesn't matter. My payment's $1,700 a month. I know that I rent that camera twice and my payment's covered and then some and I'm renting it more than twice a month. So at, at that point, I don't matter. It's a three-year uh, loan and I'm at the point now in my career where I don't, it doesn't, I, I know that I'm working enough and I know the camera will be working enough that it's not a risk. All right. Those are, those are good answers. Very interesting. I'm learning some things about you I didn't even know. Oh, well, thanks, Dad. <laughs> but I want to circle back just for a minute. Uh -huh. about You mentioned that you had, uh, you know, the trucks, or mm -hmm. your, your grip and your electric stuff. You know, what, what is that all about? So um, those first four films that I did, um, I, I, one of the things that was 
probably the most, most annoying to me was building equipment lists for what I wanted on my Gripen electric truck. And a lot of times I would do it with my gaffer if I had the luxury of having a gaffer on that early. But um, it was a pain in the butt, first of all. I had to line by line list how many C-stands, how many combo stands, how many premies, how many cables, how many crossovers, how many lights, how many, what kind of lights, uh, HMIs, tungsten. And it just, it took forever for me to build these lists and I would have to do it on these other websites. And then I'd see the bill from production and, you know, like I'd build, I'd, I'd get a truck and it would be 2000 bucks a day, you know? And I was going, that's, that's more than I'm renting my camera stuff for. How much does that truck cost with all that stuff in it? And, and a lot of times, if you use the same buy it used methodology, uh, it's not that much. So, so after I was doing some of these films, I decided to give it a shot. So I um, found, a, found a guy that was selling a van at that time. It was like a Ford E350 full of grip and electric equipment. It was pretty beat up. Um, and he was asking 25000 for everything. And I offered eighteen for everything. And he said, sure, come take a look. So I went and I plugged everything in, all the lights turned on, and some of the stuff was beat up, but I thought I can replace this, I can repair that. And and I took it home and I tore it, I took everything out of the van, cleaned it all up. You remember this, because I actually brought it here. Yeah, you did, it was in our driveway. Yeah, because I, I, my wife and I ended up, we did buy a house eventually, mm -hmm. uh, it just didn't have a driveway. So. Um, which, which was okay, it was better than in the hallway. It was better than in the hallway, yes. Yes, better than a loud drum set in the hallway. So, um, so yeah, so I bought the van, I tore everything out, I cleaned it all up um, as best I could, and then I, I tore all the shelving out of the van, and I redesigned it, put everything back in there, and then I, I had some, some gaps that I needed to fill, some specialty lights that were bigger, that ended up costing almost as much as the van. I think I spent, oh, it was like 12,000 bucks on two lights. And, but they were, they were super high demand lights, and I needed them because it was something that I rented on every single shoot, and I just needed them. It was high power and then LED. So anyway, I bought those two lights and bought the whole thing for probably less than 30 grand. And um, did my first movie on it, and the I sent the bill to production, and it, they sent a check. And I think that first one was about $8,000. And then I d ended up doing something like four movies that year, all with that van at all about $8,000 for just the van. So, so you do the math real quickly and that's $32,000 in one year. And I, I paid off that investment in one year. Yeah. And went, Oh my goodness, this is wild. So I bought another one, bought another van. <laughs> and, uh, and that's the thing I, you know, I would take that money that I would make and I, and I wouldn't spend it and I would use it for other investments. Cause there's another, there's just wild tax advantages to a lot of this too. And I le probably legally, I, I, I can't be liable for, for tax advice. Cause I just don't, I'm not a CPA, but the advice I got from my CPA was, uh, at a certain dollar level and a certain expertise level, there's something called a 179 tax deduction. Uh, for business and it's and it's equipment tax deduction that allows the federal government allows you to write off now it's a million dollars a year um, in equipment for that same calendar year meaning I don't have to depreciate it over five years or or ten years or whatever I can I can buy a set of lenses for 120 grand and and I can write off that hundred twenty thousand dollars from that calendar year if I choose to or I can depreciate it over time if it wasn't a an amazing year so there's there's tax advantages for sure to buying this equipment so I would make money but then I would put it right back into the business 
and so it would go out and make more money and that's and, and eventually you get to the point where you're creating passive income to the point where you don't have to go to work necessarily if you don't want to and that's where i'm at right now um i've been really fortunate to have been doing this for six or seven years where i'm at the point now where i've got i i've got a van and i've got a, a three-ton truck with a lift gate and it's a 16-foot uh, truck box truck um, i've got uh, four camera bodies and I've got five sets of lenses. I've got probably six tripods and six monitors and wireless video. I mean, I've got an enormous amount of equipment that's all in Los Angeles and I'm not, I'm in Glendora. I'm on the outskirts of Los Angeles. Um, but it's out there and it's working for me. And at the end of the month, I get a check, uh, from a rental house where I get buddies that need to rent the truck or someone else that hears about a truck that's a pretty good price and they'll rent it as well. And um, so that I'm at the point where that equipment has created passive income for me that doesn't, it frees up my time completely. I don't have to be on set with that equipment. Uh, and then when I do get a gig, I go, sure. Uh, and I get to bring my camera, I get to bring my truck and, and then it's just a bonus. It's a big old bonus. So, so yeah, so the trucks ended up, the G&E equipment, it's a lot more maintenance, right? Because it's thousands of little parts rather than just a big expensive mm -hmm. camera body or a big piece of glass that's really expensive. So it's a lot more maintenance, but uh, I think the bang for your buck is, is better. Okay, so up until now you've invested everything that you've made back, you've sort of poured that back into your business in buying equipment and buying something that will make you more money. Mm -hmm. At what point do you... <laughs> stop or do you put money away or do you you know you know how do you hold on to it <laughs> yeah uh good question and i'm it's honestly one that i'm still trying to figure out right now so i i have a few other investments you know i at this point it's just kind of like it's been hard to justify putting money towards anything else when i know i can make 110 120 percent return on investment for a truck in one calendar year when the stock market's not necessarily as sexy, right? So maybe if I'm lucky, 10 or 12% uh, annually. Um, but that the difference is the truck breaks down, right? So eventually that equipment will break, the lights, the bulbs will go out, uh, the truck's engine will explode just outside of Baker, and <laughs> which happens. And, uh, and $6,000 later. Exactly. Um, so that happens. And, uh, and that's something that I'm navigating right now. I'm trying to figure out. So this, this last year I, I am in stocks. I, I do acorns and Robinhood. Um, and on acorns, acorns, if anybody were to say, I want to put money towards stocks for retirement, what would I, what could I use? The quickest, I think easiest and probably most effective way is acorns. Acorns is I think $3 a month and you can get access to stock portfolios and, um, a, a set IRA account, uh, which is generally very expensive to set up and they do it for you. And so I, I have both. Um, cause I like, I like to be able to pull my money out. If you do a SEP IRA plan on not touching your money until you're 59 and a half years old, that's just the rules from the IRS and the government. So, um, but if anybody were to say, I'm, I need to start planning for retirement now, what do you suggest? I'd say start an Acorns account, get your SEP IRA, and contribute money. I think there's there are limits. You can either do I think it's twenty five percent of your annual income, or something like eighteen thousand five hundred a year. Might be might be nineteen five now. Um, are the limits? That's a tax deduction, by the way. 
And any contribution to a SEP IRA account is a tax deduction for that calendar year. Uh, and then you pay taxes on that money when you pull it out in retirement. So you, what if you're already retired? If you're already retired, I wouldn't, I don't know. I don't know. Can you, do you still get the tax deduction if you put it into your SEP IRA? I mean, it's, it's a question that's kind of outside <laughs> the purview of this. Yeah, this. and that's definitely a question for a CPA. And I'm not a CPA. Yeah. You know, and I, and I can't pretend to, to know all this stuff. I just know it works for me. And this is something that for my age group, I'm 35 years old. This, is, this has been something that's been positive for me. Um, I don't know. You know, if I if I were over 60 years old, I would probably just, and I wanted to be in the stock market, I would probably just invest in the stock market and pay capital gains on the money I made. That's probably what I would do uh, if it were fun for me, you know. Uh, hopefully you get to the point where you're 60 and retired and you don't have to play the stock market. You can just retire on your 4% annual, you know, whatever, and you're good to go. There's a, there's a rule, it's called the 4% rule, where you can withdraw 4% of your uh, of your money from the stock market and it won't ever deplete uh, according to history anyway so so yeah I right now I, I think I made about 15,000 last year in stocks um, certainly not something that I could pay all my expenses on um, and we had an incredible stock year and I and I wasn't dumb about it but everybody made money last year in the stock market you know and so um, I'm I'm in the stock market a little bit. Uh, I I also do something called Fundrise, which is is just like an app for it's a mutual fund for different real estate projects, and that did okay. It was I think I made seven or eight percent on that one, um, and so it's you know there's there's things out there, and I'm trying to navigate it. I'm trying to figure it out. Um, I I did buy a house uh, eventually with my wife, and and that did very well. We we bought the house. Uh, five almost six years ago and we put a lot of work into it a lot of sweat love and tears into that house and um we bought it for 390 and we just sold it last month for 630 and uh so that and we did a 15-year loan on that house as well so traditional is a 30-year loan uh, most people i know do 30-year loans on their houses and my advice to them would be that's really stupid yeah that's my advice here's the reason you end up paying not just double, it works out to about three times more if you do a 30-year loan than a, a traditional 15. So we did a 15-year loan on that house and put a lot of money into it, and uh, but ultimately made in about five and a half years after all of our expenses, after their payments to the house, um, after everything, our down payment, we made $200,000 um, after we've paid all our realtor fees and all that stuff, 200 grand. Not to mention we didn't have a, a rent payment to make for those six years. That's not including that. So if we had continued to pay the $1,500 we were paying for our apartment, or $1,600 we were paying for our apartment, which was low at the time, I'm sure people are paying a lot more than that now, um, that wasn't factored in. So you consider that's another 18,000 a year. That's, an, that's another $80,000 that we just didn't pay. So it's 280 grand you know, in that, in that real estate project. So uh, there is, there is stuff to be said. I don't know if that's going to work going forward for someone buying a house right now. The market's insane. And will it go up? Will it go down? I don't know. People thought we were crazy for buying a house in Pomona for $390,000 five years ago. So, you know, I just don't know. I don't have a crystal ball. I know it works for me though. Great. Well, Lars, this has been enlightening for me to have this conversation with you. And to be honest with you, I, you know, as a parent, mm -hmm. 
you always want your children to do better than you. And, yeah. and, and I can, I think I can honestly say that you have you, uh, and I'm so proud of you. I think that that is, uh, every parent's dream. Uh, and, uh, so I'm, you know, I, and I don't think children get to hear their parents tell them how proud they are of them enough. I think you're right. I, I, and I grew up with wonderful parents who told me all the time how proud of me they were. And, uh, well, we believed in you. Yeah. And, I, and I'm paying it forward. I've got two, two beautiful daughters now that I, I love to tell them how proud I am all the, every day. So thank you very mm-hmm. much. You're welcome. And, uh, I guess that concludes my first experience as a podcast interviewer, and it's been a pleasure. Yeah, likewise. Whew. Oh, that was fun. That was fun. I had a great time doing that. He's great. Honestly, I love my parents. I really do, man. Again, let's go ahead and, and uh, rate the podcast, review it on um, iTunes, uh, if that's what you're listening. Um, subscribe, if that's not where you're listening, and let's go ahead and share it. Let's share a link to, to social media. Uh, either Facebook or Instagram, and let's uh, let's get the buzz going. Thanks so much, guys. Have a good week.